Today's podcast is sponsored by Fire Facilities Incorporated, expert engineers, designers, and manufacturers of steel training towers, burn rooms, and mobile units that are all made in the USA. Welcome back to 3.5 Fighter. Today's guest is Adam Neff. Now, I met Adam in person at FDIC. I followed him through Facebook. We were lucky enough to connect at FDIC. Uh, one of those guys you just fall in love with right off the bat. But he, he, right now, Adam Neff currently serves as the Assistant Chief of Training and Operations at the Nixa Fire Protection District in Southwest Missouri. His fire service career started 28 years ago, as did mine, but not as a cadet volunteer like you. Uh, you still love going to fires. That is evident by your cool mustache. You've worked your way up through all the ranks from firefighter, driver operator, to company officer, to battalion chief, to now your assistant chief. Um, let's see. Okay, now, I know you're not real big on education, so there's not a, a lot to say about that, except that, let's see, you have a CFO designation from the Center of Public Safety. You have an associate's degree in fire service administration. You have a bachelor's degree in business management, and I think that's all the degrees you have. Oh, wait, there's more. You got a master's degree in emergency services management, and that's it. Oh, wait, there's another master's degree in clinical mental health. You started the, let's see, the Ozark Mountain Fools. Uh, you also are the founder of the Springfield Area Memorial Climb. And also, you didn't write it in here, but clearly you do not sleep. You're a vampire, is the way I'm seeing it. That's the only way to get this shit done. Brother Neff, it's so good to have you on. Thanks. I appreciate the compliments. And uh, just for a point of clarification, I was one of the founding members of the Ozark Mountain Fools chapter, uh, one of the original founding members. So I don't want there to be a misrepresentation of my brothers here in yeah. Southwest Missouri. So, But to be fair, since I said it on my podcast, it has to be true. So, okay. Uh, Am I going to argue Brown with fake news, right? Right, that's right. That's right. That's 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 so true. I apologize. You are the founding uh, uh, Adam is the founding member of the Ozark Mountain Fools. Boom. Bad yep, there was uh, thirteen of us total that started that chapter uh, many years ago. Lucky so, thirteen. The uh, lucky thirteen. Yeah. Well, yeah. I like to start off as, as much as I can. I want to know what got you in the fire service. I see that you were a cadet volunteer, but what? What made Adam Neff wake up one day and say, first, I'm going to have a mustache that rivals Goldfeder, Dave Mellon, all the good ones, and be a firefighter? What was that? Um, ironically enough, my mother got me into the fire service. Um, she worked, uh, I was raised in a single parent home, and she worked overnights at a factory and got her EMT license as to get her out of the factory and then realized she couldn't... Um, couldn't raise two boys on a EMT salary in the early, late 80s, early 90s. So she started volunteering and I was getting uh, into my teenage years and uh, when mom go to work overnight, I would sneak out and get in a little bit of trouble and she talked to the fire chief and uh, two weeks before my 15th birthday, I was scrubbing floors and washing fire trucks and I was hooked. Uh, it's all I ever wanted to do was be at the firehouse. And matter of fact, my senior year in high school, uh, I did a work program through Votech to learn a trade. And then the second semester, I did a work program at the firehouse. So uh, my friends all thought I dropped out and all that stuff. But no, I was just spending as much time 
Uh, I made my first entry. I got into trouble, but I made my first entry when I was 16 years old. And um, <laughs> 16? Yeah, I was more scared of the fire chief when he found out. It was just kind of the right place at the right time, and I didn't know anything back then. But I was uh, pretty well off kitchen fire, and I uh, just humped toes and did what I was told. And yeah, and I was fortunate enough. Uh, right after my 21st birthday, I was hired by the same department. We had six full-time firefighters at the time, two per shift, and um, did uh, the driver operator thing for about five years and got promoted to captain. We passed a big tax levy and just continued to grow and did five, six years as a company officer and got promoted to battalion chief, did uh, eight years in the battalion, and then um, 2018 and got promoted to what the... Promoted to the desk, and I don't know if that's really true or not, but yeah, I love the fire service. I love what I do. So, well, yeah, a couple things. First, you look way too young to have achieved all that, <laughs> so that's awesome. Two, I like you love the fire service. Uh, some people that I work with, although they're good firefighters and all that stuff, uh, they they call me a nerd, and me and a couple other guys, but they call us nerds, and they mean it as an insult. I take it as the greatest compliment you can give me because I truly w with all my heart love the fire service and I love every firefighter I meet I love every fire station I go into but I'll tell you something um, you, you kind of triggered a memory for me not, not really a memory but sort of when you were talking um, I think it is to this day 28 years later it is so cool to say the phrase I, going to the firehouse you know, like I like sometimes I got to go on a weekend to pick stuff out of my office. Hey, I got to swing by the firehouse and my brain. I'll go. Isn't that cool to say that you work at a firehouse? It's just I love yeah. the firehouse that much that things like that kind of trip me up. And I'm like, oh, man, I just love this fucking job. It's it's I always yeah. say I feel bad for fighter pilots and astronauts because they couldn't be firefighters. Yeah. Well, I think ironically enough and and kind of through this realization through education and whatnot that. I found out that I'm really a relational ship type individual. Like I enjoy the interaction with people. And um, when I go to the firehouse, I sometimes leave stuff in my office and need to run to the run to the office or run to work real quick or run to the firehouse. And I'll still sit there and I'll visit with the crew that's working. May only be for a few minutes, but I make it a point to seek them out. And every night when I leave the uh, the office. I swing by the crew because uh, we share the headquarters stations, also one of our staff stations. And I always make it a point to stop in, tell the guys, have a good night, see you on the big one. You know, just that typical, you know, leaving remarks. And, uh, you know, we will bust chops and I'm like, hey, I hope you guys have a quiet night. Don't turn a wheel and, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Jinx them, right? them, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they know, they know if it's, if it's a good one, then I'll, I'm going to be there too. So it's, it's all good. That's awesome. You know, it's, it, I've had a couple people ask me and I've written a few articles on leadership and I struggled to try to understand leadership, but, and, and this whole podcast came out of an article I wrote in my journey to understand the foundation for leadership. It finally hit me. It's exampleship. You know, you got to be a good yeah. example. That's your, as a starting point is the whole idea of the right. article. And I, so I had a pyramid of exampleship, pride, training, physical fitness, which is where three-point firefighters started. Um, and I think you've got the pride part down, right? And I know you got the training part down. So you said something earlier 
uh, before we started recording, and I wanted to tell you real quick, I'm really big into higher education. Uh, I, I didn't, I barely finished high school. I had to go to summer school three years in a row to barely finish. And I'm pretty sure, because I was a class clown, that they just kicked me out, basically. So just give him a fucking diploma. He's not going to go anywhere. Uh, and But yeah, you said you also said you don't need any of that stuff to do this job and do it well earlier. But that was my journey. So when I went back to school, um, I, the, my situation was this. Um, there was a promotion I really went for, and I went for hard. Now, at the time, my department, they would post stuff and say, hey, you want to be a captain? Put, give us a piece of paper saying you want to be a captain. That was all that was involved. Yeah. So I made I made a fake well, not a fake resume. I made a short resume, and I went to all, on my days off. I went to all the majors. I went to all the chiefs, and I made them interview me. And I didn't get the job. I kind of knew I wasn't going to get the job, but anyway, um, I was had that when I found out I didn't get that job. I was sitting there talking to my wife. I was complaining like a firefighter does, and I said, "I will have a damn college degree before I ever get promoted." And the very next day, I enrolled in college, and I got. Uh, my associates, and then I got my bachelor's. Um, so I believe in, in, in higher education uh, it, overall, but do you have to have it in the fire service? I think it's a, a great benefit, especially in the chief officer status. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your journey? Because, I mean, two masters is nothing to joke about. And your masters, both your masters are so different. Tell me how you got there. Yeah, um, my educational journey really started off in the purest fire service uh, motivation. I, I, I was going to get paid more money if I had a degree, right? We do an education incentive. So I thought, well, I'll go get my associates. There's a local college that partners up. So I get credit for, uh, you know, some of my certificates that I got through the extension office at the university. So um, really before even any really of the online stuff that we know of now that existed. And um, I didn't even open most of my textbooks. I never even opened because I couldn't find value in what I was doing at school. And I always believed, well, I'll get more money for the textbook if I sell it back unopened. <laughs> and my wife's like, you know, you'd actually do pretty good if you had applied yourself. You never even opened the textbook and you're already, you know, uh, a B average student. And Without opening a textbook? Without even opening the textbook. Jeez. I think traditionally, and, I, and, and much like you, I barely graduated high school and um, sometime about third or fourth grade, I had an IEP done. I was um, uh, measured or diagnosed, I don't know what the correct term is, but with a learning disability. So my reading comprehension is virtually zero. So it took me all the way until about 2008 before um, I had confidence that I could go back to school. And that really, a lot of that came from uh, my wife. And as I get through my associates and I do okay, and I thought, well, I could get a little bit more money if I get a bachelor's. So did a bachelor's in business. And some of this, I'm, my mentors are forecasting, hey, do something that you can use outside of the fire service. You know, you're not going to be in the job forever. So I did that. And then when I applied for MBA, um, they told me, well, you have to retake these classes because your grades aren't high enough. And so I'm retaking these classes, really hating that. And What classes, um, what classes were you... Oh, uh, we'll go like statistics and, you know, I can't only really, it, it was probably some, you know, college algebra or something like that. Right. And 
Um, so I'm like, why am I doing an MBA when I, if I'm going to do a master's, it's got to be in something that I love. So that's why I did the emergency services management. And at the end of my bachelor's getting ready for an MBA, I finally started taking multiple classes and applying myself and believe it or not, I was successful. So I couldn't use the excuse anymore that I just don't take tests well. And as I communicated with other people and started realizing for myself is, well, what is it about the test that you don't do well? And I believe because it's such a canned answer, because it's so relatable that no one ever asks that follow-up question about, well, what is it about the test? You know, is it reading? Is it is it the question itself? Is it the comprehension? Is it we're getting too much in our own our own headspace? But because it's so relatable, no one ever asks the follow up. And we accept that. Well, I just don't take tests well. I'm a firefighter. I don't take tests well. Okay, so it's usually comes down to that lack of preparation. So at the end of my bachelor's degree, I'm I'm doubling up classes so I can be done getting ready for the MBA for my MBA, and then I realize. I don't want to do an MBA. That's fucking terrible. I want to do something that I can, that I love doing in the fire service. And so I did two classes, two master uh, graduate level classes. I was still on shift at that point. Um, so the schedule was really conducive to doing online and writing papers. And next thing you know, I'm like reading stuff. And I, I, I have for myself figured out how I learn and it's not taking notes. It's not, the traditional way of learning. I found my style. And then after that, I mean, the, it just opened up. I couldn't, I couldn't absorb enough information. Not only about the job, but from outside, I was looking outside of our industry. And through that process, I was asked to be in, uh, to be a part of this uh, national society of leadership and success. And I'm like, you know, in true cynicism, cynicism form i was like this is they're wanting more money for me the school's wanting more money for me i'm not doing this bullshit and i kind of <laughs> looked into it and and then the next thing you know i enroll i accept the nomination i paid my money and i enrolled in this process and i started a lunch and learn cohort with people that i knew that were um, experts in their own fields, right? And we would meet like once a month and we'd talk about what they're doing in inner industry, what I'm doing in mine. Um, how can we help each other out? And the next thing you know, this network continues to grow. And all at the same time, in 2013, I started the Springfield Area Memorial Stair Climb. It's a stair, it's a memorial climb that we do to honor those that were killed in 9-11 through the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. I'm just doing all this stuff, right? And got my master's degree and I'm just I'm 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 done. I don't know what else there is to do. I gotta ask, I gotta interrupt you. You said something yeah. I gotta know. You said um Basically, you found out how you learned, and then you couldn't you couldn't really absorb enough. What, how do yeah. you learn? How, what is it that makes you learn different? Um, so I've kind of stumbled onto the fact that I'm pretty intuitive. That's how I was able to kind of get through some of those earlier uh, degree programs without um, really having to dive too much into the book. I can take what the instructor is saying, the bits and pieces that I'm learning, and I can make those connections, right? Mm -hmm. I'm very analytical in that, uh, in my empathetic approach with people. Um, so, and I have a philosophy uh, when I interact with people that if you have a certain body language or maybe it's a look or whatever, um, the 
one of the things that I uh, adopted from my mentor, from a mentor of mine, a professor of mine um, in school was um, see, say what you see and see what you get. So if there's something that looks a little, so instead of avoiding stuff, I'll just ask them, right? So in that same conceptual idea, the way I learn is um, if the assignment was, you know, I don't know, list, you know, five different therapy um, uh, modalities on treating people with general anxiety disorder, right? So I, I could go through that and put, the, instead of reading it word for word, I could take the context or the intention of the, of the subject of the modality, and then I could apply it both from experiences I've had in the fire service and experiences I've had elsewhere. And that's instead of having to read 190 pages, because anybody who's done any schoolwork, there is so much reading involved, especially if you're doing online, which both of my graduate degrees were strictly online. Um, there's really no one that bounce, bounce it off. Is this, am I going the right way? Am I going, right. am I understanding this correctly? You just put yourself out there and you're either successful or, or you're not. And I think the confidence that the fire service gives me is that because we win a lot. I mean, we win every time we get on the truck. And even if the patient doesn't survive, I can compartmentalize and give you 10 things that we did correctly where we won. You know, we turned out quick. We had all of our protocols done. We, you know, pulled the hose line, whatever the case may be. And so I would just put my stuff out there. It's like good grade, bad grade. It really didn't matter to me because I did my best work. So uh, really, that's, uh, you know, I, I took you around the world for a very short answer. But the reality of it was, is that I had the confidence that one, I was smart enough. And two, I also accepted the fact that it's not going to look like, like my wife is super uh, intelligent, got her own master's degree, and she and I learn very differently. And I can't, I can't learn how she does. Um, you have to slow it down. You have to make it a little simpler for me. So when I started seeing clients and stuff um, as a practitioner, as a clinician. Now, wait a minute. So I like, now, when I interrupted you before, you had just finished your master's degree in, in uh, emergency service management. Then you go and get a degree in clinical mental health. Is that what you're yes. talking about? So yes. how did you make that leap from that to that? Okay. So I'm going to just preface it with this. Typically when I teach or talk, I have a whiteboard that I write stuff out on mm -hmm. and it's not for you to understand. It's to make sure that I stay on track because I have so much stuff going on that it, as you see, I can jump around a whole bunch, but <laughs> so I'm somewhat egotistical in my approach to my job and egotistical is probably not the right word confident, right? So if you, if you were my company officer or firefighter that, um, you were struggling with the performance issue, then you and I would have a conversation and I'm confident that we could put things in the practice that would help you improve, excuse me, your performance, right? And had a lot of success with a lot of people that I worked for. Um, and when I say I worked for them, I, as a supervisor, I work for my people, right? So that's, that's my philosophy and my approach. So, so the firefighters that I work for have had great success overcoming barriers or performance issues or getting promoted and all those other things. And so I had a company officer come to me and say, I really think I'm going to kill myself. Like, like legit for real. 
like legit for real. And that kind of stopped me in my tracks and we were kind of talking and he says, uh, when we just got done with our annual hazmat physicals and that's usually the only doctor anybody, any of us ever see. Right. And he says, yeah, I, I told the doc this during the physical and he pulled, literally pulled out his suicide risk assessment card, checked all the boxes and told, told my, uh, my guy that he probably should go see somebody and then sent him on his way. So that kind of put me on this path of going, well, God, I don't even, I mean, it hadn't even been thought about. I mean, it wasn't even, I mean, we different articles and different things, but really it, this is 2015, 2016, somewhere in that time frame. Um, so mental health, particularly in the fire service was just kind of scraping the surface. There wasn't a whole lot of people talking about it. Um, and I didn't know what to do. Just sitting in that space with that individual going, well, this is, I'm, I'm the guy that's supposed to be like, you know, confide in me. We'll work through the, the shit. You know, I've been on shift a long time and I don't know what to do. I don't have policies and procedures. I don't know what to, I don't know what to do. Fuck. So that really fucked me up for a long time and not, and, and mostly because I, I want to be, Right. That's that internal drive and passion and to whatever anybody wants me to be. And that's unrealistic. Right. But if I can be there and be something or do something for somebody, then I want to be the guy. Right. You need help moving. You know what? Fuck you. I'm not helping you move. But if (laughs) if you need a couple bucks, I'll give you a couple bucks. No, I'm just teasing. Um, So uh, I kind of started. So. I really kind of set on a path of how I can find resources and how can I, you know, this is a weak area. This isn't, you know, I can't drill on this enough. I can't practice mask up uh, drills with gloves on to get better at handling um, my firefighters' uh, uh, mental health issues, right? And and I work for a small department. We've got three staff stations, um, uh, 10 guys on a ship plus the battalion. So, Um, I found the class. It was preventing secondary trauma for first responders. It was a train the trainer class. It was put on by the state of Missouri's mental health. Um, some really smart people out of the Kansas city area, which is about four hours away from me. And I signed up to take this class and out of the three years they did that train the trainer in the state of Missouri, I was the only firefighter in the whole state that had started and finished that class. <laughs> and uh, it was such a heavy mental um, fatiguing class that that's why guys started and then didn't come back because it's so heavy that they'd actually do two days and then they'd take 30 days off and you'd come back and finish it. And, um, and then the more I got involved with that, and getting involved with some peer stuff. I had some, gosh, my own mental health shit that I was trying to deal with that kind of got uncovered in all this. Um, I thought, you know what? I kind of like this and I think I can be really good at it. So I found an online um, accredited mental health uh, college and yeah, the rest, they say, is history. Ironically enough, because I'm a fireman and I don't know any better, um, I applied at Northwestern, 
I don't know if you're familiar with Northwestern, oh, yeah. but it's a Big Ten school. Oh, yeah. And I'm just looking for online schools, and I applied. And I come out, I tell my wife, and I said, hey, great news. I found this place that I applied out. They waived the application fee. I'm like, ha, score, save $100, right? <laughs> she's like, where did you where did you apply at? And I said, I don't know, someplace up around Chicago. So if I go to go to campus, I'm eight hours away. It's not that big of a deal. And she's like, Chicago. I'm like, yeah, it's like, I don't know, North, uh, Northwestern, I think. She's like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and she's like, I don't want you to get your feelings hurt or anything, but don't be surprised if they don't call you. So she's kind of telling me, and I'm like, I'm a fireman. I'll do whatever I want, right? <laughs> and so long and short, I get, I get an interview. I get invited for an interview. And at that point, um, she's like, I just don't want you to get your hopes up. So I get to the first round and I get invited for a second interview. Now, this is all new to me, right? I'm like, I pay my money. I go to school. I don't know what the big deal is. And apparently not at Northwestern. And uh, so at this point, my wife's like, if anybody's going to get accepted to Northwestern, it'll be you. And uh, <laughs> we were watching, we were watching Step Brothers. And it was during the movie Step Brothers that I realized how prestigious Northwestern was because he was talking about, um, you know, Brennan's stepdad you know, did his uh, degree at Northwestern and then went to John Tompkins or John Tom. But anyway, it was in Step Brothers that I realized. And long into the short, it was an online program, but you had to be there scheduled every day for class. And it wouldn't have worked with my schedule anyways, even if I got accepted. But I didn't get accepted. And uh, I ended up going to Walden, all online, for-profit school. They had an accredited program. And yeah, like 192 credit hours later, I had my second uh, – uh, in a thousand hours of clinical time, I had my uh, second master's in clinical mental health and um, had to, once I graduated, I had to take a national counseling exam, uh, which is an ocean of information for a puddle of a test. Um, <laughs> brutal test. Worst test I've ever taken in my life. You think national registry is bad. This thing makes national registry look like nothing. And uh, I passed that. Um, applied for state licensing. Um, so currently I'm a psychotherapist for a local counseling company called Beyond Healing and where I see clients in the evenings and on the weekends. So, Wow. Now, are you yeah. focused more on the fire service or first responder side of it or is it just about anybody? Um, just about anybody. Honestly, through this whole process, I've really found... Um, found my way of, man, I really like um, doing skill development uh, on communication, conflict resolution, and, and those kinds of things. And during my internship, I actually taught a class at an inpatient uh, treatment center for men on conflict resolution and, and communication, because I think... Um, you know, and I and I see all kinds of clients from I, I don't see little kids, but from teenagers on up and couples. And really, I mean, the goal is to I wish I wish I could just solely see uh, firefighters, military, police officers, that kind of stuff. There's just not enough of us going to counseling mm -hmm. to support solely seeing that type of population so and I'm new in this so uh, I have my I have the same approach um, to counseling as I do in the fire service and I love it as much as I do 
you know, washing uh, fire trucks and scrubbing floors. That's how I feel about counseling. Um, it's a never ending learning process. I'm always going to be challenged. I'm always going to, um, uh, you know, try to influence and how do I serve people? It's just in a different manner. And I think it's, it's that experience that has, you know, if I get one of my firefighters comes to the door and they're, man, their time management is crap and they really need help with time management. No problem. Let's talk about how you can get better. It's not me providing solutions. It's you. It's me helping you identify what's going to be successful for you. And through that process is, you know, identified an OVS program. Uh, it's ownership, value, sustainability. So, um, you know, kind of transitioned at some point, you know, as we talked earlier um, about doing, talked about FDIC and, and that experience. But um, yeah, really that, I think we can be probably more successful, not only in our professional lives, but as well as our personal lives. If we're better communicators, if um, we really kind of get more in tune and in touch with ourselves, uh, not to be too touchy feelies. I don't have the fingers. I don't have the finger symbols out just yet, but I think there's, um, I think there's a lot of that that we can benefit from not only in our, in the firehouse, but also just uh, interacting with people. Right. Um, so yeah, it's been great. I got three, uh, thankfully the thousand hours of clinical time I did, uh, for my degree doesn't count for state licensing. So I get to make up those 3000 hours, um, from starting from scratch and yeah, so it's, it's great. You know, when it comes to mental health in the fire service, I know, uh, when I got in, you really didn't talk a whole lot about it. And also that you were told, at least I was told never take it home. You leave it here. Uh, and I sort of followed that, I, but I can be a very emotional person. So when I did make those runs, I wanted to talk about it and I did, I couldn't, I tried. Right. There's one, one I always bring up uh, on this podcast where I made a horrible wreck. And then I went to the senior man after we got back and I wanted to talk about it, but all I could say was, man, that was fucked up. And he said, yep. And right. he walked away. Um, and that really bothered me. But now fast forward to today, um, one of my new, he's not a new recruit anymore. He's been on five or six years. But he was, he's at the, he's stationed with, with me out of where my office is. And we spent, I, I got to work, took a shower, I was walking across, still had my bags on my shoulder to go to my office. And me and him started talking about runs and how it affects us and how in six yeah. years he's seen a lot of things and things that I, and I sat there for an hour, hour and a half just talking to this guy and telling him, you know, what, what broke my heart. You know, what's hard to carry. And he did the same thing. And, you know, right. like for me, like people that are my friends that know I'm a firefighter, especially when I first met them, they're like, well, tell me about the worst thing you ever you saw. And I'm like, I gotta be honest with you. It's not what you think The the trauma and the car wrecks, that's not the worst thing. It's the emotional, yeah. you know, the blood and guts doesn't bother me because it doesn't seem real to me. It doesn't, I don't know what it is, if that's a gift or a curse with me, but, yeah. uh, the emotional. So I tell the story of, uh, this is the story that I tell them. And they all go, really? That's what bothers you? But um, there was a run on older people. Now, when old people, uh, they turn their living room into a hospital room, everybody had, and everybody knows that they're going to die today, tomorrow, next month, next year. So they can get right. used to it. I made a run where uh, the the husband, the, I can remember the house was perfectly clean. I can remember, I can still see to this day. But 
he, I guess he woke up dead. She found it, found him, called us. The ambulance got there first. And as we're wheeling him out, she won't let go of his hand while they're doing CPR on the thing going out the door. And she's kept literally begging for him to come back and how she can't live without him. But literally what was like, she was truly begging for his life. And even though he was dead and for whatever reason, to me, that's one of the worst runs I ever made. And I tell people that story and they yeah. go, no, no, no. I'm talking about, you know, gunshots and stab. I'm like, dude, I'm telling you, that's the one that haunts me. Mental yeah. health is weird. In the yeah. Service. Yeah. Well, I think the, you know, we actually, you and I talked by chance at FDIC and, you know, I have a short list and uh, people I want to meet that I know on Facebook, but I haven't met in person. And, you know, it's, if you've ever been to FDIC, it's kind of crazy. Uh, Cause it's like, man, you got, I'm going to do all this stuff. And next thing you know, you're on your way home and it's all been a blur. And you're not yeah. even sure what happened. And, um, you know, we were talking about FDIC, um, how, how people process things. Right. And I'm the same way. Like one of the worst calls, um, that I ever went on that probably messed me up the most. And I, and even till today, I mean, it's been uh, seven or eight years ago. Um, sometimes I talk about it and I'm good and some, some days I'm not and, uh, nothing even bad happened. That's what's so crazy about it. Right. So, um, and it's not the traumatic calls, right? It's not, I don't know if it's a programming. I don't know, as you said, if it's a curse or a gift. Um, but I believe in this process that each one of us has this container. I call mine my trauma box. So I have this trauma box and, you know, at some point it's going to come out. The box will only hold so much, right? And what I try to communicate to uh, firefighters, uh, law enforcement, military, those folks, anybody, actually any of my clients is that if we can be intentional on letting those things out. So one of the big questions we talk about is, you know, why is the mental health in the fire service all of a sudden a big thing? I think it was always a big thing. I think just the uh, protective factors that we had in the firehouse at the time was how we uh, purged our box, if you will. Um, so we sit around the kitchen table or the tailboard and we have this conversation and there's a lot of power in that, right? There's a lot of power in the story of, you know, what you did and what you saw in that particular example. Um, and then we use our own language, right? So it may not be, like you said earlier, man, I was really fucked up. And sometimes that's all it needs to say, yeah. right? And then sometimes what gets communicated is like, yeah, it was really fucked up. Did you see that guy's face, you know? And it, and we're using our language to talk about it. It's not, as I try to communicate to other clinicians, it's not that we're, you know, finger symboling. I use that reference twice, finger symboling. Um, kubaya and around the table we're using our own language to process what we've just seen because the next run may be right now right i can't even process the first one let alone go on the second one and so i think when we talk about that we lose some of that because of some different things in the firehouse um so cell phones is a big part of that right everyone's got to get caught up on their ticky talkies and their snappy chatties and all the <laughs> other crap um our own individual bedrooms. I have never worked uh, in a firehouse that we've had a communal bedroom. We've always had individual bedrooms. Okay. And there's only one time where we were remodeling where we had a communal bedroom. And I thought, this is the stupidest fucking thing ever. I don't know how anybody sleeps in a room with a bunch of other guys. Um, so we lose that 
uh, kitchen table or teleboard discussion. Workload is also another big contributing factor. Also, uh, who else is in the building, right? So if you and I are having a conversation and I'm like, man, do you see that guy's dick? I mean, that was so weird, right? And then I uh, piss somebody off down the hallway that's not even involved in the conversation. Well, then I have to be concerned about what I what I say in the firehouse. Right. And we've never had to really do that before, right? And so all those things impact our current protective factors, right? We have a new, you know, I work in a young organization. We've only like retired one person in the history of my organization. Um, wow. Yeah, we've been around since 1986, right? We we went complete, well, we started having full-time people in 94, and we've only had one out of that whole thing make it the whole time and actually retire. So, um, so we're really young. So I don't have, you know, decades upon history and culture to develop young people about tailboard time or the importance of investing in your crew or, you know, I was always real big about, um, you know, when I was a company officer, even when I was a battalion chief, we would do as a company officer, my crew and I, we would go floating for the weekend. We take our families and go camping, you know, really getting to know, you know, and not, not knowing it at the time, that was me being relational with my crew, investing in them. And as battalion chief, we would have family fun day, right? And my uh, radio sling uh, that I had made up um, said, it's my burden to bear, right? Because no one else understands the decisions I have to make in that moment. I'm sending potentially nine guys to their death. And it's not as a battalion chief, it's not, hey, let's go in there and get this thing. I trust my skill level, but now I'm putting people that I may not even worked with. It could be on a shift swap or a trade day or whatever in there to their deaths that based on the decisions that I'm making. And then a family fun day, I realized there are 67 people relying on my decisions as a battalion chief to be perfect every single time we go on a call because it's families and that's the direct, right? That's direct. That's on the, that macro level. Well, I have 47,000 people in my community that's relying on my decision and the skills of my firefighters, right? So um, Rob Fisher, a big mentor of mine, would always say, you know, I don't tell my guys to be safe. I tell them to be smart, right? And I think when we talk about um, responsibility to people, both our own firefighters and the community, we kind of miss the mark, right? A lot of company officers, and I challenge them in my class to go, well, is it your responsibility to make sure they go home at the end of the tour? And everyone unequivocally says, yes. Okay, but what happens when they don't? See, my philosophy was always, um, it's my responsibility to try to make you as prepared as I possibly could for the things that I'll ask you to do. Right. That decision of coming home at the end of the tour, I don't I don't have control over that. But what I do have control over is the amount of hours we put in the training, how we drill, how we educate ourselves in our first due area, all those things. So I think we tend to bind ourselves in a corner because we don't think about when the bad stuff is going to happen or that it, that it ever will. Right. right. So I think when uh, we talk about those things and we look at that, it was my burden to bear because as a battalion chief, you're really in purgatory, right? Like the crew, you're not really a crew because you're admin, you drive your own vehicle and you wear a white shirt. And you're not really admin because you work shift and 
you know, you advocate for your firefighters. So you're really getting beat up on both sides mm-hmm. and you're just kind of finding your own way. And um, so that realization of you won't ever understand it until you're in the position yourself and you have to make those decisions and you're looking around going, who's going to help me? No one's going to help you. It's your decision to make and you have to make it and you have to be able to defend it. And and it's not because everyone always agrees with it. And you know, I work with, with some really outstanding firefighters and company officers that made my job exceedingly easy um, and also made it difficult and challenging because those are the guys that are a little rougher around the edges. And I was okay with that. I'll answer for that kind of bullshit. But uh, <laughs> when I worked, when the work came time to, to work, I, I felt good. I felt good with the decisions I was making because the people that I worked with and trained with and spent time with, we had built trust, not only in the firehouse, uh, but we built it on the training ground and then it showed on the on the fire ground. So I don't even know where we were at or what we were talking about. I just kind of got on a rant. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. I just kind of came back into consciousness and I'm like, what the fuck were you talking about? I have no idea. So I was enjoying the ride. I don't know what the fuck we were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I was along for the ride, brother. I love it. I think maybe mental health or learning. I'm not sure, but I think, I think it was uh, fuck moving. I think that's, I think you say fuck you. Fuck yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I got a little bit of my firefighter came out. Sorry about that. Uh, well, I, I should have said earlier, I don't, on my pot, it's, it's a fairly clean podcast. I don't like saying, damn. Fuck shit, motherfucker, mother damn fuck shit, pussy fart, none of that. I won't tolerate yeah. it, and so I should probably put right. that out there. Well, you didn't say cockwaffle, so I think we're okay. No, 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 cockwaffle's good, because I think that's in the Bible. Oh, okay. We're good, we're good, we're good. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you something else, all right? I could talk to you mental health all day. I really could, because I, right. I, think, it's, I think it's overlooked in the fire service. I really, truly do. Uh, I'm starting to see, you know, more puffs of smoke coming out of the eaves, like, you know, PTSD and then communications and, and then having you know, right. health experts. Um, but let's, let's move on a little bit to something that you, you were talking about, a professional standards chief. Now, I've never heard of this, and it's, I'm intrigued. Yeah, I, um, I sat in a class at FDIC, uh, Chief Klein, and, I, and I, I never, I didn't know who Chief Klein was as, um, and I felt really dumb afterwards. And I'll tell you a funny story. And I hope he listens. Uh, I don't know if he does or not. But Chief Klein is out of South Carolina. And forgive me, I, I forget the department name. But he presents at FDIC, and he's a, uh, from what I interpreted, like an old school FDIC guy. Been in the job like forty plus years. I mean, just. And I was amazed the way he controlled the room. It was honestly the only class at FDIC that I sat through the whole class. Um, and he's a professional standards chief. And I'd seen a couple different job postings for professional standards chief. And I don't have an opinion really one way or another, but it really kind of, I don't know. Really, I put it on the list for us to talk about because I really didn't know what to put on the list. But I really, I'm not, I'm not 100 sold on the professional standards chief. So what is it? Um, Tell me exactly what what you how you interpret what that that position is. How I interpret it? Okay, so like in my organization, I developed our probationary process, our probationary firefighter process, our driver operator process, our company officer process, and I'm currently working on our battalion chief process. And that uh, I don't want to dive completely into like JPRs and all those other. I mean, if we were playing bit, uh, you know, buzzword bingo, I would have, I've already would have 
got it by now. But I think the I think the idea is that if you have a position in your organization, that professional standards chief develops the curriculum and the criteria to make sure they're prepared to move into to that position. Like because a job what, description? We, would that, would job- well, not necessarily a job description, but more like the training that's that goes along to make sure that we're gotcha. meeting, you know, the expectations. So I think, you know, and kind of what I do, because I noticed that because we're so young, I don't have tradition and culture to be able to develop new people. I have to be a little bit more intentional with programs and processes to help shorten that learning curve. And there's no training program or process that replaces experience. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about um, making sure that they understand the paperwork side, the administrative role of their job, right? Because how much support is there for um, hands-on job function in the fire service? A ton. How much time do we spend teaching and developing our, our company officers, time management, conflict resolution, interpersonal dynamics, those kind of communication skills, virtually little. So I think what the professional standards chief does is that they develop that curriculum to make sure that people are prepared going into their job. I have a six-month probationary process, and then they are, they're off probation because they finished their, their task book, and then they're off probation, and then they're assigned to a company, obviously, and they're, they're continuing to get training, so they're good at, at being a firefighter. And there's not uh, any other job in the fire service uh, that I'm aware of that we spend that much time preparing people for their new position, their new role. And I think that's what professional standards chief does. I just don't know why we had to create a whole new position for it. Uh, seems like we're getting away from like the training officer or the training chief role and creating this other role. I don't know, but I work in a small department and I wear a lot of hats. So I'm just like, oh, well, maybe quit being a bitch and just do the work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I'm glad you said that. I work for a small department. We got five stations, uh, all, all paid. Um, but I feel the same way. I have to wear many hats too. And yeah. it's to me, I can't be a hundred percent any one of those jobs, right? So if I have a hundred percent that I can give my job, you can't help but split that up the more jobs you give me. So for one of the things I've got to do is I'm gonna do our quality checking, our NIFIS reports. It, it's right. not that big a deal, it's mind numbing, it's it's that's what it is, but it's not a yep. big deal. But there's no way I can give 100% in training and 100% in NIFRS. It just, it does, the math doesn't work out for me. And then on top right. of that, uh, I used to be an on call arson investigator too. Um, so there was just no way. And there were certain days, for example, if there was a fire that I had to investigate, I also had to check the NIFRS when there was training that day. So right. I truly believe that that job should not be overlapping like that. I understand they have to be in small departments. Uh, I get that, but there there needs to be a limit to it. And it'd be nice to be able to afford a professional standards chief, but let's play the, let's play the magic fairy dust game. You could create any position in your department. Okay. Any, any position whatsoever right now, would it be that or what would it be? Um, Originally when I was promoted in 2018, I was promoted to a newly, created position of training chief and I was training 
And then when the chief retired, that was our first retiree, the new chief come in, and I've known the, the current chief for my entire career. Um, I got additional duties assigned operations. So if I was to do it again, if the magic fairy dust, I wouldn't do uh, professional standards. I would split the training and ops like it was before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was some restructuring done. We added the health and safety officer. Um, duties were already overloaded to some extent because we're trying to grow. We're trying to be professional, all those other things. So I think right to what you said, um, something's got to give. I can't do ops and training equally of the attention that it needs. Right. So still progressing on the things that I wanted to do when I promoted, but it's just taking longer to get there plus right. COVID and all other stuff. But for me in that question, it would be to have another chief officer position to be able to just do ops, focus, do ops, just do training. We're yeah. lucky that we have an ops chief. We have a personnel chief and the my, my magic fairy dust would be a health and safety officer. Um, yeah. For, for not just mental health, obviously, but you know, cancer and, and physical fitness, all that right. stuff. Uh, that's that's what I'd like to be uh, say. But again, in, my, in a small department, if you create that position in one year, what's that person going to be doing? Oh, also, we're going to need you to take care of, you know, company inspections or, you know, you're going to be our yeah. quartermaster too, you know. And it's right. I understand you're limited on money. I get that stuff. But at some point, you if you're going to apply all those layers to one position, then just expect less. <laughs> You're just going to have to expect less. Yeah. Something's got to give. My humble. Yeah, the opinion. timeline gets the timeline definitely gets longer on those things. And you know, when I was thinking about something when you said about mental health and suicide and stuff, just to kind of circle back briefly. Sure. Suicide is bad. I'm not saying that it's not, but I think um, I think we have a lot of guys suffering by not being present. Right. So whatever happened on their shift day, they get home, they're still carrying it around. They're not at home with their family. They're thinking about their previous shift. So I don't want to I don't want to take away anything about the severity or how bad suicide is, because it is. But I also think we have way more people suffering. Um, I have an article that I'm writing on now that um, I'm working on. I haven't I'm not ready to put it out to the world yet, but I'll give you the title. It's a a penthouse letter. I never thought uh, it would happen to me. White. Okay. Not I didn't. White. I was just. I was thinking about what was the other one? Was it Harry Beaver? Was that us? <laughs> anyways. Anyways. Um, I put it out there. I, I, I love yeah. Adam Neff. I just love him. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think. Uh, so the title is I didn't even know I had a mental health problem until someone told me. And because I thought it was normal to sleep three hours a night, I thought it was normal to be thinking about the job beyond the nerd level, right? right? Um, and until I started like interacting a lot with outside of the fire service people, uh, none of that's normal, right? Like I think about like some monumental things that happened in my family's life. You know, my kid graduating, you know, uh, grade school, going into junior high or a significant birthday. I was there. I know I was there. I've seen the pictures, but I I just don't remember it. Right. And some of that I'll chalk up to bad memory, but some of it was how much of that was I preoccupied? How much of that was my box full with other stuff that I couldn't be present? So I think um, 
man, healthy boundaries is such so critical for this. And I think a lot of people, particularly those of us in small departments, and my department's fully paid as well. Um, you know, when it used to be coming up, it's like, oh, the guys that weren't sacrificing every day, picking up all the overtime, those types of guys. If you're not one of those guys, then you're not made for this job. And I don't know, maybe they had it worked out perfectly. And I, we're the ones that were the suckers for <laughs> missing out on things and whatnot. I don't know. But some of that, you know, shifted that focus when I was thinking about suicide and mental health in the fire service. I think we have a lot of guys and girls that are suffering by not being present when they're off duty. Right. They're right. so focused still on the job. They're still carrying around that stuff. They don't have healthy outlets to, uh, um, you know, process stuff. So anyways. I, well, I told you I had that conversation a couple of days ago with a guy that's been on six years. And I was telling him, I, I don't know a lot about PTSD, but I know if I sit down and I've done this before, I've sat down and I try to write out how many runs I've made, runs that I remember in 28 years. And that's two continents, right. three states, civilian and military. Thousands. I could remember maybe 15. And then, yeah. so where it worries me, though, is something will trigger a run that I made. That, But mm -hmm. all the runs that it triggers are horrible, horrible runs. And right. as soon as it comes into my head, it almost instantly goes away. Right? Yeah. And, and that's my, but I told him, I said, again, I said, I don't know if, I'm doing it right or I'm doing it wrong. I feel right. fine. And, yeah. you know, is my brain you know, is one day after I retire, 10 years after I retire, I'm going to have a mental breakdown through all this shit. Or is my brain, you know, running high function going, hey, we got this. You don't need to know about this. We, I don't know if it's a blessing right. or a curse. I really don't know. I just know that's what yeah. it is. Uh, perspectively, um, some of those things that come in and go back out, right, those don't have any juice left in them, mm -hmm. right? Like you processed it out, you squeezed all the juice. I could be playing a video game with my kid and like, oh, it was a car wreck. That was really bad. And that sucked. And right out, right? right? And we're not even doing anything associated that would trigger a memory like that. Um, things just pop in and pop out. And what I try to coach and, and get uh, skill development in is, is instead of resistance, it's acceptance, right? I accept the fact that I've got that memory. Yep, that sucked. That was a bad call. And I'm, I'm on to something else, right? I'm not hanging it on. I just accept the fact that it sucked out the door. That thing doesn't have any juice. My call in 2015 that messed me up for, still messes me up. It's still got juice in it, right? Mm -hmm. And for myself, I've, I've sought mental health counseling myself. I've done EMDR. Um, and it's, it's helped me. It's helped, um, helped me be able to, um, label and manage my emotions, right? We can't control them, right? And if we do, let's just say we do for a second, we shut off, you know, the disheartening, the, the sadness, right? But we also shut off the corresponding happiness. We don't get to choose. It does both, right? right? So we have to, um, that's part of that being present, right? If I'm compartmentalizing and I'm shutting everything down because it's bad and right. Well, what's the thing that triggers it to turn it back on? If I shut it off to go on this bad call, like I consciously say, I'm here to do the job. That's what they're paying me to do. They rely on me to be good at my skills. I can't think about what I'm looking at. I have to think about what I'm doing. Cool. We get done. What's for lunch. We go eat lunch. But at what point do you turn 
social skills back on? What point do you turn communication back on? What point do you turn joy, happiness, uh, all those things back on? What's the trigger for that? We typically don't consciously say, now I'm going to be happy, right? So I think a lot of times we, uh, we're really good about that compartmentalization. Um, you know, when we talk with new people going on significant calls and we have a chaplain program and chaplain's awesome and I'm not a big religious guy, but I always communicate to the company officer, are you doing good? Yeah. What about your guy? That's his first, you know, infant call or first child death call. Yeah, we'll talk to him, you know, da 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 da. I'm like, mm, we're going to make a call to the chaplain, just have him stop by, check in. And he's really good about, oh, I'm just in the neighborhood, thought I'd come by and see what's going on. And so he's really good about that. So no one knows that it's a trigger, right? But right. we have to be better at that, right? It's our, it's our responsibility that um, just because we got kicked off the end of the dock and we swam doesn't mean everybody does, mm-hmm. or that was the way that it should have been done for us, even. It's right. like saying I was beat as a kid, so I'm beating my kid because I turned out okay. Right. What? That doesn't make any sense. Right? Yeah. So, I don't hurt, know. Hurt people hurt people. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, so, let me ask you this. I want to end on something. Uh, your class okay. at FDIC this year, just it, I didn't get to sit in on it. I hope you do it next year because I'm right. definitely sitting in on it. It seemed amazing. Tell me the title of it and tell yeah. me about your class. So my class was how you run your firehouse is how you run your fire scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a four hour to six hour class that I developed um, a couple of years ago, really to talk about some of those things that we've been talking about communication, interpersonal dynamics, conflict resolution. We talk about the F word a lot. Fart? Uh, feelings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's feelings. feelings that's a little different. Um, and you know, well, you may not know, and this is my first class, my first time presenting at FDIC. I've never gotten to do it before. I'm a um, like a seven or eight time loser with FDIC. Um, got rejected a whole bunch, and uh, um, just keep putting myself out there, and um, they'll either get tired of me, and that'll be that, or I'll get to present. So I got to present, um, and really, the class is really about. Um, all these opportunities to win in the firehouse. Like if your firehouse is a shit show, then likely your company is a shit show, right? Like the fire ground doesn't go good either. Right. And there's so many ways to win in the firehouse that helps us, right? It's almost transcendent to the fire ground, right? So how can I give a company officer, um, you know, a strategy or a tactic or an order and expect that it's going to be performed the way that I want it to be performed if there's not trust there. And how do we build trust? Seemingly insignificant moments of time over uh, being consistent over time, right? It's conversation about learning about your family, your background, your history, what got you into the fire service. I mean, all that stuff is building relationship and building trust. Little things equal big things, both good and bad. And one of the things that I like to do in the class is I got, I say I got mixed reviews. I got great reviews. I had about 40 people in my class. But what I didn't communicate overtly, because I left all my notes that I've been using to teach this class the last three or four years in the hotel room, because uh, I was amped up. Um, to meet me. The night before. Uh, it was. It was. Um, I it was it. even like, really? I don't even know if I want to teach class. I just, I just. I wake up Jake every Barnes. morning and I look in the mirror and I go, holy shit, I get to be Jake Barnes. It's awesome. Uh, uh, 
I could actually, we could do a session if you wanted to talk about that. Hold on now. Um, Hold on. <laughs> I see what you did there, uh, you some bitch. <laughs> you son of a, So we really talk a lot about feelings and the fact that we try to communicate as to why people do the things that they do. If you're my firefighter and I'm your company officer, I truly believe that you have the desire to show up every single day and to do the very best possible job that you can. And the whole class, every class I've ever taught goes, yeah, I believe that people show up to the firehouse to do the best job they can. Great. And if I, as a company officer, do my very best to communicate expectation, why do we have a miss? Why do you still miss and why do I get frustrated? So when we talk about that kind of stuff, I use the story of like of my daughter when she was a toddler. Hey, you need to clean your room. Now, my daughter has no desire other than to make dad proud. She's not out to get dad. She's not a chess player. She's a checker player, right? So she cleans her room. I come back, check on her. Man, the room looks great. And my daughter is beaming with pride because she knows dad's going to give her accolades and it's going to be great. Until I open the closet door and look underneath <laughs> her bed, right? And we say that with, with, with as a relatable story because even if you don't have kids, you experience this yourself as a child. And I do that because if we already agree that firefighters are here to do the best job they can – and we communicate expectations the best way we can, why do we still have a miss? And I think it's a process issue, right? We've not communicated. If we give this much more information, uh, expectations would be met, confidence would increase, uh, trust would be built. I mean, it's all fundamental and foundation in this process of relationships, right? And then what you and I were talking about, which I think scored me the spot on the podcast, was when we talk about emotions. So emotions are high, logic is low, right? So mm -hmm. if, if you've ever said something that you've regretted, if you ever put your hands or words on people and things, if you punched a hole in the wall, broke furniture, and then after the fact, you're like, why did I do that? That makes no sense why I did that. Or why did I say that? Because emotions were high. Logic was low. Our skill development and communication is so far off base that the only thing that we could do is explode with words or actions. And then once we got all that out, our emotions come down and then we can logically think through this or communicate through this, right? So let me give you an example really quick here because I know you want to wrap up. And this is all within this class, right? We talk about all of these things in this class. And if I can give relatable experiences and people can say, oh, yeah, they can identify a time or a place where they've done this themselves. And have you ever asked your wife, hey, uh, babe, are you OK? Because clearly she's not. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why we asked the question. I've made that mistake multiple times. Yes. Yes. And then they say, I'm fine. Right. And then our first thought is, oh, shit, what did I do? Right. Because in no realistic realm of the world could my wife have any problem with anybody other than me. So clearly it must be me. And then <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> right? Well, we keep picking. Are you sure you're fine? Because you don't look fine. You look really pissed off, right? We just keep picking until it is about us. Right? So what a, a strategy that I uh, communicate with is try this next time because we because we're problem solvers, right? It's all we ever do at our jobs. Yes. But none of these problems are things that we actually have to solve, right? Maybe all we need to do is hold space. It's the same with our firefighters, right? Um, if 
if our firefighter's struggling, right? If we have, if Bob has great performance nine days out of 10, and on the 10th day we fall short, what do we typically say? What the fuck, Bob? Yeah. Right? It can't be anything other than the fact Bob sucks today. He's just having an off day. Uh, maybe Bob's having some trouble at home, right? right. So we, we keep picking on our wife because she's obviously upset. And we're problem solvers. We want to fix it. Just tell me what's wrong. We'll fix it. We say the same thing to our kids, right? Just tell dad what's wrong. Dad will fix it, right? And then we have this big blow up. And now we're back to a position of, ah, oh, now I know how to fix it, right? The problem was me. It wasn't, right? Because our wives, our spouses, our significant others deal with all kinds of shit outside of us, right? Uh, but we carry that same fear into our jobs. But with our wives, we can say something really significant, say something to the effect of, and this is a skill development, right? We say, hey, uh, I see you. Uh, when you're ready to talk, I'm ready to listen. And then you just walk away. Because they don't need me to solve their problems. Matter of fact, my wife is really smart. She doesn't need me to solve her problems. And this is what happens in the firehouse. Hey, chief, how's it going? Good morning. And he doesn't say anything to you. Oh, shit. The chief's mad at me because clearly the chief couldn't have any other things going on at the <laughs> firehouse you. than me. Right. I'm the center of the universe. Right. <laughs> so what happens is we carry that anxiety around all day until we get to the end of the day where the chief's getting ready to leave or we're getting ready to go do something. And we knock on the door. Hey, chief, can I talk to you for a second? And you throw out some, you know, kind of testing the waters. You throw out some bullshit type of conversation. And then you go, hey, um, just want to see if you're mad at me. Because I said hi to you this morning, told you good morning, but you didn't say anything back to me. I was just curious if it was something that I did. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. The chief's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm doing budget proposal stuff. I've got CBA stuff. I've got whatever it is, mm -hmm. right? But we've had this anxiety all day long because we think someone's mad at us because they didn't say hi to us. So really in this class is really talking about uh, labeling our feelings, taking some of that power away, um, increasing our ability to communicate with others through active listening. Uh, and I'll, I'll shoot you a video about it's not about the nail, uh, but we're really good about listening to respond and to solve problems versus listening to hear. Um, and then we also uh, kind of wrap that up with um, having gratitude, right? So if I say, hey, and I'm, we, did, we did this in our correspondence, you know, appreciate the opportunity um, to come on, right? And I've watched some of your other podcasts and it's like, hey, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you. And then the other person says, hey, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it, right? We're just not, we're not okay. We're not programmed to say, you're welcome. Right. We have to give if we get gratitude, it feels weird. So we have to give it back. Right. Instead of just saying thanks. Like it felt weird. You're reading through the bio that I sent you going, I don't even is this too pretentious. I don't even know this is even good or what he wants. I don't know. Like I like right. I lost like two days of sleep over it. <laughs> and, uh, and and like was going to send you a different one. Like, hey, read this one instead. Right. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay. It's not that big of a deal. I recognize how I was feeling in that moment. Mm -hmm. and I didn't need to do anything, right? Because I'm all, I'm probably, like a lot of people, are going to overthink it, right? They're going to think worse of it than anybody else will, too. Right. And Absolutely. I think uh, when we're talking about mentorship, this is a part of mentorship that we're missing, right? That honest 
uh, conversation about how we're doing with our feelings or the spaces that we're in. I had a company officer say I had to walk out into the into the bay um, because I didn't want to I didn't want my guys to see me mad. Ah, Captain, respectfully, I think they need to see you as a human. Right. This job impacts us for real and they need to know that it's OK to be impacted for real. And if we need to take you out of service for a bit and those kinds of things, we have all those abilities to do that. But I think we need to show our firefighters, company officers, chiefs, we need to show everybody that it's OK to make mistakes. It's not that big of a deal. We need to give a little grace. We need to get a little grace and honestly just be open and go, look, I, I Man, I was super excited about coming on the show. I had some anxiety. I had some fear. Um, you know, was uh, you know, is someone going to say something that you know they think I'm full of shit or you know whatever the case may be? I can't control any of that, so I'm okay with that too. So I think that's where we miss a lot in the firehouse to build trust, and that's how we get success on the fire ground. So that's what the class was about. You said something earlier. Uh, it's something that my wife taught me. Uh, the dealing, I have, uh, I have a couple sons and I've got like three daughters, right? So yeah. I'm constantly in hell. But, um, she told me early on, the, my beautiful bride teaches me all the time. And she told me, taught me early on when my daughters are having a problem or she's having a problem. I don't want you to fix it. They don't want you to fix it. They want you to say, mm-hmm. God, that sucks. And just to your point. So I have translated that over, and I don't know if I did it consciously or not, but there's so right. many times I've had guys come up to me bitching about something, and I just, honestly, I just listen to it, and I go, man, that's terrible. That is just absolutely terrible. Depending on the situation, I might say, what can I do for you? But right. you said that, and I'm like, holy cow, that is just, that's an amazing tool to have. And it's there's not a lot of amazing tools that are super easy, and not trying right. to solve somebody's problem is super fucking easy. It really is. But to, right. to listen and just say, you know, that's terrible. And I like what you right. said, you know, when you're ready to talk, I'm ready to listen. You know, that that that's wonderful. That's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. But, yeah, the fire service is weird. We're the first we're the first group to want to give help. We're the last group that wants to take help. And, and yeah. it's just it's such a weird dichotomy there. But it I, took I like me the four years. Yeah, it took me four years for me to finally send my email to, to the therapist that I ended up with. Mm-hmm. Four years. I was in. Four years. I had an email drafted. And I never sent it. Ah, I'm in. I'm in class. I'll learn. I'll take care of myself. It's fine. And then I'd have these moments of clarity, right, where I was maintaining well. And then I recognize where I'm not, right. And I used to drink really heavy, um, and really got the ultimatum of, hey, you're either gonna drink or be married. Uh, I like to be married. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, and it was always, it wasn't like I was, you know, clinically and I could get out the, the diagnostic manual and show you clinically, I wasn't alcoholic, but I definitely had a drinking problem. And if we were at the bar having a drink, we'd be in a competition and I'm going to win. You don't even know we're in a competition and I'm going <laughs> to win. Right. That's, that's kind of like the process that I was in and, uh, you know, kind of recognize that this isn't sustainable and, um, I think a lot of those instances, you know, I had a lot of people teaching me uh, and th- I'm just grateful that they invested in me and my education, both in life and on the job. And I think uh, I was doing this on Friday at FDIC. I was having this discussion and, um, you know, I, th- I think I told you when Jared Sergi was standing there about uh, I sat in on his class and I kind of filled out some notes about the impact that. Uh, Jared had on me and my career. And I think too many times, um, 
you know, we recognize the mentors and the people that have impacted us professionally and personally, but we don't do a great job of communicating that. So I went around like FDIC to the people that were there communicating like, hey, here's the impact you've had on me. Here's a specific example as to why it impacted me. And this is the change that it's made in my life. And it always means more if you're able to be specific and give examples. Hey, uh, you know, your podcast is great. I really appreciate it. You know, Jake's a, a, a mentor of mine. There's people I look up to and there's mentors that I have. Um, and the mentors that I have are both in the industry and outside the industry. And it's amazing, too, because when you start telling people and giving them gratitude, it also changes the dynamic of that relationship, right? So I have uh, mentors that it, recently it was their birthday. And I'm telling this guy, this grown man, that I love him. Not many grown men do that, right? But the impact he's made on my life, both professionally and personally, I'm just so grateful. I don't have any other words other than to tell him that I love him. Right. And then I say the same thing to my a female mentor of mine, uh, who's not my wife, that um, I love her. She has impacted my career, my personal and professional outlook, both with uh, information and books and everything else. I don't have any other way to describe it other than I love her. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that's, that's it. And I think, you know, we always talk about, you know, death and life on this job. And it's a short period. We're going to do 20 or 25 years. Very few of us get to do really much more than that. And it goes by so fast. So why wait? Why wait to tell, you know, the Rob Fishers, the Bruce Bjorgies, the Tyrondos, the, uh, the Mike Torres, the Jared Smiths about what kind of an impact they had on me in my career. You named a lot of I, really big uh, industry heavy hitters. You might have left one off. I'm I, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, what's his name? Uh, oh, uh, Frank Baskew. Uh, God list him. damn it. <laughs> uh, Jared Sergi, Ben Martin. I got mentors that I've never even met before that I can – I can be very specific yes. that have impacted me. Um, and I think that value comes from being specificity, right? And I'm, and I'm gifted uh, and I feel gifted that I have this connection with my feelings and I'm comfortable in sharing them on your podcast and anybody that's willing to give me a platform to share it because, um, gosh, it really will fuck up your life if you're not processing the stuff that happens to you on a normal basis. And when I ask this question a lot, because I want to get people's reaction and I asked it in my class, it's like, Hey, if you go to a medical call, is that something significant? Are you doing something heroic? And a hundred times out of a hundred, they say, no, it's not heroic. It's not to us. It is to everyone else. Right. And we have a hard time of recognizing it because it's part of our job. Right. Right. I always ask the question to company officers, do you pick and choose your battles? And nine times out of 10, they always say yes. And then I'll say something like, okay, so this is our policy manual. Tell me which one of these you're going to enforce and which ones you're not. Well, I got to enforce them all. That's my point. You don't have to club everybody over the head, but you got to at least ask the question, right? right. And uh, you said something about leadership and leadership and, and you have your philosophy and what it looks like to you. And I was writing 
this class and, and getting prepared for FTIC, taking a six hour class, and cutting it down to an hour and 45. And I had this slide. I don't know if I'm supposed to leave it in there or not because it's kind of controversial and I'm not sure. And I'm kind of like, ah, fuck it. You know, if I get, if I don't get invited back next year because of this slide, I'm it's, okay with it. It's a flat earther slide. You're a flat earther, aren't you? I could see uh, it in your eyes. I could see it. It's it's actually soda pop, not soda or pop. It's actually both. <laughs> so Anyways. What was yeah. your slide? So the slide was about how to define leadership. And I don't know how to define leadership, right? So my slide goes, definition of leadership, it's like pornography. It's difficult to define, but I know what it is when I see it, right? <laughs> was it like Larry Flint, right? Um, so, and I had people come up to me after my class and not knowing how, did it go good? Did it not go good? Did it, did I cover the material that I wanted to cover? Um, I had like four or five people come up to me after class, tell me about the impact of this class. Right. And I'm like, no matter what the evaluations say, it was a great experience. And yeah. I actually don't plan on, I didn't, I didn't submit proposal this year for, for FDIC. Um, cause I'm starting to practice, uh, I'm starting to practice as a clinician and doing some other things. And I mean, it was a great experience. Uh, and I'll be back. I'll, I'll, I'll develop something I'm sure. But, um, yeah, it was a cool time. It was, I, I encourage, I encourage the class that was sitting there to put your name in the hat. You can't win if you don't play, you know, cliche, cliche, cliche. But the reality of it is, is that, the only difference between anybody standing at the front of FDIC classrooms and the people sitting there is them putting their stuff out there. Yeah. Right? And that, and you mentioned, touch on that a little bit. It is hard sometimes to put yourself out there, especially in the fire service. Uh, and that's what started my, uh, uh, so I had the idea for the, the article, like I mentioned, but actually creating the podcast, it's not me. I just, you would never in a million years think that was me, but I remember thinking Jared Sergi, Put because he was my first guest. Uh, he had to be the first guest. He put himself out there in the pages of his book with some pretty good ideas, right? Yeah. And I remember reading it, thinking, you know, what if his own guys busted his balls? What if people called him from Arkansas saying he's an idiot? You know, uh, I thought all these negative things, and right. then I was like, what if just one guy said that book changed his career? Right. Well, fuck, that's that's a big fucking deal right there, right? And right. that gave me the fuel in my tank to, to go outside my comfort zone, which is totally outside my comfort zone. It's one of the right. greatest things I've ever done talking to people like you and everybody that's been on here. Uh, it's very selfish of me because I don't want to pay $600 to hear Adam Neff. I want to talk to him for free and have a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, I right. want to talk to keynote speakers fucking for free one-on-one -on -one all day long. It's a blast. Right. It, it, it right. makes, it makes us all better. I think. Uh, but you, I, Dude, I love you, man. You're the best. I just, I, when I first met you, I was like, this guy, he's, he's it. He's the one for me. I just, uh, I appreciate you being on my show. Uh, I just had a blast. This time has flown by, flown by. And I yeah. look forward to seeing you in the future, man. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, it's been a pleasure. And I really appreciate that uh, I put myself out there and said, hey, you're, 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 I know you. We're friends on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'm just grateful, uh, for the platform. Um, I think a lot of times we get, um, frustrated because it's not the platform that we wanted. Right. Yeah. Like I yeah. put, I put my name in the FDIC hat. I wasn't picked. So I'm not, 
I'm not teaching anywhere. I'm not writing any articles. And the reality of it is, is we're given platforms every single day to promote our message, our message, our vision, whatever it is that drives us. And we, we miss it sometimes, most of the time, because it's not the platform that we want. Right. Right. The platform that's been given. Will I speak at a Rotary Club? Absolutely. You give me an opportunity, uh, I'm going to speak. Um, and I and I love it. I love talking um, about this job and and how I do it. Right. Right. Uh, I'm not Ray McCormick. I'm not Mike Dugan. I'm not. I'm not. Man, Mark Von Opp and Kurt. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And the Dude, reality exactly. of it is, I mean, the reality of it is, is I'm not them. I'm me. And I can only do it the way that I do it. And you don't have to be from FDNY. You don't have to be, you know, from a big name department to make an impact on this job. But it's nice to to, to be part of the national conversation in our job. It really 100%. is. You can have 100%. the smallest voice ever, but you're still you're, you're in the show. It's, it's, it's an amazing opportunity. And I said this. Uh, uh, I forget who I was talking to. I've had so many podcasts lately, but I, I was talking about legacy. And mm. there's guys that come to work, they do their 20 years, and they're out the door. They don't go to conferences. Right. They don't, And that's fine. They come to work, they do their job. I get that. But their great, great, great grandparents or grandkids, when they are able to look back from Mars or whatever, to see what their family did before, what are they going to see? Right? right? So my great, great, great grandkids are going to see my passion for this job. They're going to know for a fact they'll never have met me. They've only heard how weird I was, but they'll be able to yeah. see these videos, listen to these podcasts, and know how much passion I had for the job. Just like everybody else yep. I talk to knows how much passion I have for the job. And yep. like I said, it goes back to what I said in the beginning. They call me a fire nerd as an insult. They don't realize it's absolutely a compliment. I love my job. Yep, 100%. 100%. Best job in the world. Yeah, well, that in Pornhub, being like a director in a Pornhub movie, I think that'd be awesome. Mm, I'm not real big on smells, so I'm kind of... Well, that, that's the only thing that draws me to it, is a good smell. I like the musk. I'm not going to lie. I like the musk. Yeah. What is that, Sex Panther? I'm pretty sure that's what that is. <laughs> Who farted? Is that a bag of yeah. corn chips on fire? Yeah. Uh, I don't know yeah. what that is. Brother, you have a good one. Good talking to you. Will do. Thanks for having me. See you, brother.